Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Hi, I'm Lydia Brown. And I'm Carmen Baskoff, and we're the producers of Where We Live. Before we hear the show, we're taking a moment to remind you that we're in the midst of a fundraising campaign. We appreciate all of our listeners, your comments, your tweets, your show ideas. So if you appreciate the show, consider going online and making a pledge of support today. You can go to wnpr.org slash donate. That's wnpr.org slash donate. And thanks. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. One third of American children are overweight or obese. Their ability to lose weight can reduce risk to their health, but that can be easier said than done. And what impact does stigma play in contributing to weight gain and social isolation? We'll talk with Rebecca Poole with UConn's Root Rudd Center for Food Policy. That's coming up. First, a story in HuffPost may have popped up in your social media recently titled, Everything You Know About Obesity Is Wrong. Have you struggled with your weight? How has stigma felt at home, at work, or at the doctor's office impacted your ability to become healthier? We want to hear from you. You can join the conversation. Email us, where we live at WMPR.org, and you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. In a few moments, we'll hear from the director of the Yale Weight Loss Center, Dr. Wajahat Mahal. First, Michael Hobbs joins us by phone. He's a reporter for HuffPost or HuffingtonPost.com and the author of Everything You Know About Obesity is Wrong. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. You also are the co-host of a podcast you're wrong about, and we'll have information on our website about that podcast. But tell us first why you wrote this story, Michael. Well, I grew up with a mother who has struggled with her weight for her entire life and my entire life. And I saw the way that people treated her in public, kind of the looks that she would get or the comments she would get at restaurants, on public transport. And then I also saw the way that she acted in private which is that she was always exercising. She was always on a diet. She was always trying really hard. And even as a young kid, it just seemed unfair to me that somebody's trying as hard as they can, and yet the message that they're always getting from the rest of the world is that they have to try harder. You mentioned you you noticed that your mother uh, struggled with weight. Um, Is this something that you then internalized? Did it impact how uh, you approached uh, your health and your weight goals? I think so. I mean, the the main thing was that it just it gave me a chip on my shoulder in the way that we talk about fat people in this country and the way that we talk about weight in this country, the way that oftentimes whenever Chris Christie or Donald Trump comes up in kind of left-wing conversations, the fat joke is always about one or two sentences away, right, as if them being bigger is the worst thing about Donald Trump or Chris Christie. And so it just I think it's this way that it just kind of poisons Every conversation about health and food and body image, this idea that we're all totally terrified of becoming fat and that if someone is fat, they must be lazy, they must be corpulent, they must not think very hard about what they're doing for their health. 
Uh, your article is fairly long, but there are uh, two points that you uh, make, and one is uh, for 60 years, doctors and researchers have known two things that could have improved or even saved millions of lives. The first is diets do not work. And then you go on to say the second big lesson the medical establishment has learned and rejected over and over again is the weight that weight and health are not perfect synonyms. So talk a little bit about uh, that, that second point that I brought up, this idea that you have to be a certain weight to be healthy. Well, we have this, I guess, unspoken assumption that if you're a larger person, you must be unhealthy. And if you're a smaller person, you must be healthy. But those circles overlap quite a bit, actually. And there's a lot of skinnier people that are pre-diabetic or have insulin resistance or don't have good diets and don't exercise. And there's a lot of larger people that do exercise and do have good habits and do have fine cholesterol and resting heart rate and all these other things. But I think the bigger point is actually, whenever you bring up obesity, we very quickly start talking about the health markers and the debate within science about obesity versus health. But I actually think it's worth considering that it doesn't actually matter. That if we know that weight loss is almost impossible, it's very rare for people to lose more than 10% of their body weight. And we also know that shaming people is really bad for their health. Feeling rejected or being rejected by your doctor, especially, is terrible for your health. So if we know that, why is it so important to focus on these terrible health effects when we know these people probably aren't going to lose weight and that being mean to them makes them even less healthy. So even if every single fat person in the world is super unhealthy, if they're not going to lose the weight, what's the point of being mean to them? Uh, when in your reporting, you profile uh, you know, several different individuals who've uh, had um, uncomfortable experiences at the doctor's office, but uh, in no way is that um, uh, an experience that everyone has at the doctor's office. Um, tell us, when you uh, did this reporting, do you really uh, believe that the medical community is complicit in this obesity stigma? Well, I think it's important to make a distinction between obesity care, which is how people lose weight, and just medical care for fat people. And I think that there's both of those things are very flawed, right? And the kind of advice and the kind of imperative that we give to fat people, you must lose weight, here's the way to lose weight, calories in, calories out, that's not particularly helpful. But then there's also the side of things where when fat people go in for an earache or with their allergies, oftentimes they will get a weight loss lecture from their doctor. And it's really interesting that, you know, there's been three or four decades of activism on this point. And fat people are not saying we want more effective weight loss care. They just want effective medical care. And there's quite a few studies on this, that doctors spend less time with their fat patients. They have less emotional rapport. When you show them a chart of somebody with migraines and you, you list her weight is very high, the doctors will report, oh, she's less likely to follow our advice. She's less likely to do it we tell her. She's more likely to be lying about her condition. And when you think about it, this has profound impact on the health of larger people, that they avoid health care. And when they do go to health care, they're, they're getting misdiagnosed or underdiagnosed for conditions that they have. I've heard so many stories while I was writing the article of people whose doctors won't give them an MRI until they lose weight or won't give them fertility treatments until they lose weight. And so it's really not that the medical system needs to be better about giving people diet advice, although maybe they should. It's more just fat people are getting very ineffective care and they're avoiding care and that has huge impacts on their health. 
Michael Hobbs is a reporter for HuffPost. Uh, he was the author of this article that you uh, may have read. It's uh, been shared widely on social media called Everything You Know About Obesity is Wrong. I wanted to bring a doctor into this conversation now. Uh, joining us from uh, the studios of Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut, is Dr. Wajahat Mahal. He's a professor of medicine and director of the Yale Weight Loss Program. Dr. Mahal, thank you for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome. So I wanted to have you respond to some of the points uh, Michael uh, brought up, uh, especially uh, one of the later points about uh, the fact that the obesity epidemic doesn't seem to be getting better. And if uh, if people are uh, having difficulty losing weight um, and they feel stigmatized because of it, uh, why uh, do doctors make a point to bring up uh, their their health risks uh, based on their weight? Can you respond to what Michael was saying? Sure. So, you know, Michael brought up a number of points, but, you know, on that specific point, um, uh, you know, uh, Michael correctly states that it's very difficult for an obese person to reach their ideal body weight. And he he gives a figure of 0.8 percent or say 1 percent. But it's also very important to mention that, you know, people don't need to reach their ideal body weight to get significant health benefits. Um, You know, people with modest weight loss have been studied. So 5 percent or 10 percent, which is, you know, getting to be quite a, a, a a challenging amount to lose 10%, but certainly uh, possible for many people, you know, a 10% weight loss will result in significant improvements in blood pressure and liver disease and diabetes control. So, you know, weight is um, not a, you know, on or off or black and white sort of a situation. Um, and one of the, I think the one of the most harmful things about this article is that um, it suggests that just because it's very difficult to reach an ideal body weight, you know, however we might define that, then one simply should do nothing. Um, Because the other thing is, if you do nothing, weight doesn't stay the same as we get older, it increases. So I think, you know, it's very important to still try and, you know, um, get across to people that modest amounts of weight loss, they're still medically um, and health-wise, very helpful. Also, uh, in the article, uh, Michael points out to different experiences people have had when they go to the doctor. Maybe there's someone that has uh, struggled with weight for much of their lives, and uh, they do feel like uh, you know they are uh, they are uh, dealing with being shamed because they are fat. We got a, a comment from a, a listener on Facebook uh, who I, I like to write to read this uh, anecdote. Uh, Tony writes: Whenever I went to a doctor, I got the quote "You are fat" attitude. I once went to the doctor because I was having trouble breathing. He told me it was because I was fat, end of story. I lived with it for several years until one morning I could barely breathe, and my husband took me to the ER. The intake nurse took one look at me and asked, when was the last time you had an asthma attack? Much later, and no less poundage, I found my asthma was stress-related and learned techniques that cured my asthma. I later gained more weight, and the asthma never came back. So, Mr. Doctor, your condescending attitude just proves your bias. Uh, So if you could... uh, respond again to um, these uncomfortable situations that people have when they go to see their doctor. Michael had mentioned that uh, because uh, some people feel like they're being judged or they're being shamed, that they then don't go back to the doctor. And so what needs to be done to change that if it is happening on a wide scale? Um, so, right, that's a very important point. And, and, you know, obviously everybody with any medical condition should go to their appropriate physician and seek care. Um, and I can, I'm sure there are anecdotes of, you know, patients um, who are obese who've um, not been seen in a sensitive way. And obviously, you know, I think better education for healthcare providers, including doctors, is certainly very, very important. Um, but to conflate that with saying that weight should not be brought up in a medical interview is just plain wrong. Um, you know, excess weight is definitely 
It's not a perfect indicator, but it's definitely an indicator of additional risks for all these common conditions like kidney failure and liver disease and diabetes. And I think what people should understand is that it's just a starting point, you know. Um, I mean, for example, it would be the equivalent if someone came to see me for an earache and I found they had a blood pressure of 210, which is extremely high. You know, I'm not blood pressure shaming them by bringing up the fact that, you know, your blood pressure is so high that you might have a stroke before the next time I see you. I mean, this is just an indication that something is not right. And it's just the beginning of a conversation. So, you know, we're not blood pressure shaming people or glucose shaming people who walk in with very high glucoses. They're just starting points for telling us that something's, something is, you know, off from ideal. Michael Hobbs is with us by phone, again, reporter for HuffPost. Michael, did you want to respond to Dr. Mahal? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of really interesting things there. The first is that we, we do know that it's very unlikely to lose more than 10% of your body weight, and it's very difficult even to lose and maintain a 10% weight loss. And so to me, that indicates, you know, if you're a 300-pound person, you do all this work, you improve your habits, you improve your health, you lose 10% of your body weight, well, now you're a 270-pound person. And then the question then becomes, okay, well, what does the medical community do? What do we as a country do with this 270-pound person who has perfectly fine habits, whose health is quite good, who's doing the best that they can. And right now we have a medical system where that person's going to go into their doctor and their doctor's going to tell them to lose weight and is not going to ask them, what was your previous weight? What are your habits like? What is your health like? They're going to shame that person. If that person goes to a specialist, they're probably going to be getting a weight loss, a boring weight loss lecture from somebody who doesn't know their history. And so nobody is saying that doctors should not bring up weight with patients. That's completely fine. What they should do is ask their patients, what is your weight history? What is your health? Let's look at these health indicators. I mean, we have electronic medical record software that gives doctors an alert when a patient is over the obese threshold. Well, that doesn't indicate, you know, that, that isn't based on what their blood pressure is. That isn't based on what their previous weight was. That isn't based on their actual habits. That's based only on their weight. And so a doctor cannot tell from a 270-pound person if that person used to be 300 pounds or used to be 150 pounds. There's no, there's no way for doctors to determine the individuality of patients. And what we know from the obesity science is that weight is very individual, and there's just no opportunity for doctors to individualize that care at this point. I think it's completely unrealistic for doctors to try to tell patients they need to lose more than 10% of their weight, and non-obesity specialists are constantly telling people you need to lose 50 pounds, you need to lose 100 pounds. And that's simply not realistic. And the medical community is not telling non-obesity doctors, stop telling people these unrealistic things. It just increases their desire to lose weight, but it doesn't increase their ability to lose weight. And in the long term, that makes them less healthy. I want to pick up that point uh, right after we take a, a break. Again, this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. A Huffington Post reporter Michael Hobbs is with us. Also, Dr. Wajahat Mahal, as we talk about uh, stigma surrounding uh, being overweight or obese in this country. And we want to hear from you, too. We'll be back right after a short break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Obesity is a disease. Is America doing a better job reducing the rate of adults and children who are overweight or obese? 
what is and is not working. Coming up, we'll focus on childhood obesity, but right now we're continuing our, our conversation with guests Michael Hobbs, reporter for HuffPost and co-host of the You're Wrong About podcast, joining us by phone. And from Yale University Studios in New Haven is Dr. Wajahat Mahal, professor of medicine and director of the Yale Weight Loss Program. Uh, Dr. Mahal, if I could start with you. Uh, we were hearing uh, Michael talk about um, uh, doctors not being able to individualize care and the fact that diets aren't working. And so I'm curious how you counsel your patients and should there be a shift in the way the medical profession um, handles uh, talking about weight and health uh, with uh, individual patients? Um, Certainly. So, you know, I think any doctor that doesn't individualize care is just a bad doctor, point blank. I mean, whether it's related to obesity or diabetes or high blood pressure or any medical condition. Um, And again, I just make the point that, you know, starting off with a piece of information, whether it's a person's weight or their blood pressure, is just the starting point. Um, And, you know, all doctors are trained, all healthcare providers are trained then to take a history from the patient and find out what has been going on in the past. Um, And then also, you know, weight gain is not, uh, nutrition is the most important thing for a healthy weight, but it's not the only thing. Sometimes people put on weight because they've been started on a different medication, like a, a beta blocker or an antidepressant, or they've changed jobs, or they're now working night shifts. So there are many factors that go into people, you know, putting on weight, um, you know, so to present this situation that, you know, a doctor just takes the weight and completely ignores everything about the patient and the patient's history and their lifestyle and their employment, you know, that must be, you know, a tiny fraction of doctors that would do that. So when uh, many of us go to the doctor, uh, we're uh, given different measurements and test results. And one of them that most of us are familiar with is the BMI or body mass index. Mm -hmm. So Dr. Mahal, how much should we be paying attention to that number? So I think, again, it's a starting point. Um, The BMI was really designed to study a weight in a population basis, and it's actually quite good in studying populations and what's happening to large numbers of people with weight changes. It's not very accurate for individuals. I mean, I think everybody who studied the literature would agree with that. But it's just a starting point. Um, You know, most people with high BMIs have a risk of various weight-related diseases like high blood pressure and diabetes. Now, it's a starting point. So, um, you know, after that, of course, you would check the person's blood pressure and and see what their blood glucose is and things like that. And if at the end of that, it's clear that they don't have high blood pressure and don't have diabetes, then that's great. And, you know, that's the closing point of the discussion with the patient. Um, So I wouldn't conflate, you know, the beginning of a discussion such as a beginning a discussion about BMI with immediately reaching an overall conclusion about the patient's health care. I don't, I don't think, you know, no uh, well-trained health care provider would do that. Sally is calling from Brantford. Sally, go ahead. I've had a weight problem my whole life. Uh, when I was in second grade, a doctor gave me diet pills. I got diet pills in fifth grade, and I went for weigh-ins, quote-unquote, when I was in high school. I've always eaten healthy. I don't eat junk food. But I'm, I'm overweight, and people cannot be, you know, put into a cookie-cutter mold. I'm healthy. I don't have any physical problems. I haven't missed a day of work in years and years and years. But there is a stigma. When I read um, the article a couple of days ago, I mean, my hackles just went up. And it's just really make, make, makes one really doctor-phobic to know that the first thing that happens when you step into a doctor's office is that they're going to address your weight rather than whatever is really bothering you. 
Well, Sally, thank you for sharing a little bit of your story. Um, and these are, again, these are anecdotes and, and, and stories that Michael Hobbs uh, heard when he was reporting on uh, this article. Uh, Michael, when you look at uh, possible solutions uh, versus from, from shame to support, how do we get to that? Well, I think this conversation is really interesting because we've now heard from two people who've said they've received really poor care from their doctors due to their weight. And then we have a doctor saying no highly trained professional would ever do that. And I think it's worth noting how rarely we hear from actual fat people about their experiences and how rarely we believe them when these experiences happen. I realize that these are only just anecdotes, but there's a kind of not all men type of situation here where we hear, I mean, I did not, I interviewed 66 people for this article. I didn't speak to one who had not had an experience like this with a doctor. Many of them had three or four or five experiences like this with a doctor. And one thing, it's extremely difficult to study this. So we don't know the magnitude of the problem, but we're now having a national conversation about the ways that African-American women have much higher maternity mortality or maternal mortality rates due to the fact that their doctors are not believing them when they're saying they're in pain, they're not going into the doctor. We have not studied this in fat people in the same way. It's really difficult to understand how much people are being underdiagnosed or how much people are being sent home with huge medical problems because their medical professionals are not listening to them. And so when we talk to weight loss professionals, when we talk to weight loss doctors, they are taking the time to speak to patients. They are taking the time to take those case histories. But throughout the rest of the medical field, that's not happening. And I think it's really important to listen to fat people when they say, this is my experience over and over and over again, and not just hand wave it away and say that it's the beginning of a conversation. Lots of people are not having productive conversations with their doctors. And I don't see within the medical field, a movement of doctors saying, hey, guys, we're really harming people's health with this. I don't see that. And so it's, it's disappointing to get this not all doctors kind of response. And this has been the overwhelming response to the article from doctors is, oh, well, I don't do that, so it must not be happening. And outside of weight loss doctors, outside of dietitians, it's a really not fun place for fat people. And I think there need to be more doctors taking this seriously as something that's really hurting people. Uh, Dr. Wajahat Mahal is with us from the studios of Yale University. He's a professor of medicine at the Yale School of Medicine and directs the Yale Weight Loss Program. Uh, Dr. Mahal, can you respond uh, to Michael's points? And, um, you know, should there be a shift in the way uh, medical students are even trained to deal with nutrition? Um, I think so. I think, you know, well, first of all, I mean, um, you know, I, I completely believe that, you know, patients have had um, very um, negative interactions with some doctors. And unfortunately, um, you know, the negative interactions do tend to come to the forefront when, when, you know, when someone's looking for stories. But of course, that doesn't mean they're not real. Um, but, you know, we have to realize the obesity epidemic is relatively recent. I mean, a, a few decades, which in terms of, you know, um, diseases and populations is relatively new. Um, and I think there should be a greater emphasis on teaching um, medical students and even, you know, uh, other healthcare providers about obesity. Um, so absolutely, I mean, I'm, I'm all for that. Um, when we hear that diets don't work, uh, so what's the solution for someone? Uh, we got a Facebook comment from Jason who says that honestly losing 10 pounds is not hard at all. It's literally just cutting off soda and eating good carbs. You don't even need to exercise to lose 10 pounds. He goes on to say people don't admit that they're addicted to food. 
So I think there are some misconceptions about losing weight um, in the general population and in, in amongst healthcare professionals. And really for most individuals, you know, beyond the age of about 35 or 40, it's really mostly about nutrition. Um, the other thing we have to realize is that whatever one does to try and lose weight, it could be anything. It could be the most extreme form of dietary and exercise changes. At some point when that phase, if you like, is over, the person has to ask themselves, you know, what's different about me at this point? Because if they're the same, if their environment is the same, their work environment, their food shopping is the same, their weight will go back to the same equilibrium that it was before. And in a common sense sense, why would anybody expect anything different? So, you know, tr transient changes, whatever they might be, whether they're nutritional or exercise, um, are just one component of a bigger strategy. It's not necessarily wrong to go on a on, say, a low-carb diet for a period of time, but it needs to be part of a long-term strategy. And that's why we, uh, many of us will, uh, you know, experience yo-yoing, right? So we might get that 10, 15 pounds off, and then, um, you know, I'm just curious if uh, from that standpoint, uh, when people feel like they've reached a plateau, it's easier to go back and uh, to the, your old habits. Right, exactly. And so the other thing that people put too much emphasis on, actually, is willpower. Mm -hmm. Willpower is not the most helpful thing when it comes to trying to lose weight and change our habits. What we need to do is actually change our microenvironment. So, you know, if someone has certain, say, you know, a snack drawer or ice cream in the fridge or always has dessert on the table after every meal, simply saying that I'm just not going to eat these things is not a helpful approach. A much more helpful approach is to simply not buy those things and bring them into the house and change your microenvironment. I've had, you know, patients who've gained weight simply because they've started working from home. Um, and, you know, unlike being in the office, every break is associated with a walk to the kitchen and having a snack. So, you know, these types of, you know, microenvironment things are actually much more important than just saying, uh, you know, making some sort of a conscious decision and saying, I simply won't do X, Y, and Z. We're going to be needing to take a break uh, in another minute or so, but you know, I do want to bring up uh, the question of, of insurers and uh, how insurance companies handle uh, their, uh, the people that are insured, whether it's uh, if they're overweight, are there enough incentives or programs? Is there enough treatment options for people? I'm just curious what your take is, Dr. Mahal. So in general, I think the insurance company is lagging behind um, the therapies that are available. Um, and the, you know, the, the initial best therapy is to meet with a nutritionist and have a multi-visit plan laid out, you know, at least six and ideally 12 visits over a period of time because we're trying to change behavior. So that is the first, you know, first thing to do because there are many misconceptions out there. And then for some other individuals who may be at particularly high risk for a disease, there is a role for medications for weight loss and perhaps more invasive things. And for some individuals, appropriately, bariatric surgery is actually an excellent choice as well. Um, but, you know, working through all of that with an individual to find out what the best option is, you know, just takes time. And the insurance companies are unfortunately behind the curve on this. It's interesting you mentioned being referred to a nutritionist. I've probably struggled over the last uh, 10 years uh, since having uh, two children to lose about 20 pounds. And I don't think my primary care physicians ever thought to refer me to a dietitian or, nutri or nutritionist. So I think uh, some of us uh, have, have been able to, to feel where we're not getting that um, type of referral. But we're, we're going to have to leave it there. I do want to thank Michael Hobbs, reporter for Huffington Post and co-host of Your Wrong About podcast for joining us, Michael. Thank you.
Thanks. Uh, Dr. Mahal is going to stay with us as we continue this conversation about obesity uh, in this country. Coming up after the break, we're going to hear from Dr. Rebecca Poole, who's with the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity, about uh, childhood obesity and what is happening in this country related to stigma surrounding children who are overweight. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. This is where we live. And before we get to our break, for our listeners out there, it's also our fall fun drive where we ask listeners to support the program programming here on Connecticut Public Radio. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you more. I'm Lydia Brown here with Carmen Baskoff, and we produce Where We Live. One of my favorite parts of producing the show is getting to see how big issues we hear about in the news impact us here locally, right in Connecticut. And your support helps us do just that. So thank you. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we've been talking about stigma surrounding obesity. Uh, one of our guests is Dr. Wajahat Mahal, professor of medicine at Yale and director of the Yale Weight Loss Program, joining us today from the studios there at the university. Uh, before we continue our conversation, I wanted to take a quick call. Uh, Kirsten's calling from Shelton. Kirsten, go ahead. Hi. Yeah. So I wanted to bring up the point that, you know, what would be the downside of taking weight out of the conversation. You know, when we talk about 5 to 10% of body weight loss is beneficial for health, that's because small amounts of healthy behavior changes are really impactful on health. But the problem with talking about this 5 to 10% of weight loss being beneficial is it misses out on the people who are making healthy behavior changes, the same changes, and not losing the weight because of various you know, mechanisms and physiological um, things going on that help somebody maintain their weight. So it makes those people that are making healthy changes but not losing the weight feel like they're failures when actually their health is also improving. Kirsten, uh, thank you for your call. Uh, Dr. Mahal, would you like to respond to her? Sure. So, I mean, there are at least a couple of reasons. So firstly, you know, people, um, patients who are mildly overweight, um, say 5 or 10 to 15 pounds, um, you know, we know that they're clearly at risk of subsequently putting on more and more weight. So one of the goals for bringing up weight, even if someone is modestly overweight, is to, you know, try and stop that trajectory or, or change that trajectory. So that's one thing. Um, and then the second thing is you're absolutely right. So someone, if somebody starts exercising, they will typically not lose much weight, but will clearly, clearly be healthier. Um, however, you know, weight is an approximate readout. Um, so and that's all it is. I mean, no one is making a complete person judgment of a patient based on their weight, but it is an approximate readout as to how effective people have been. Um, and, um, and that's all it is. I wanted to shift the conversation to uh, children in America because of that statistic about one-third of children in this country are overweight or obese. Uh, joining us by phone now is Dr. Rebecca Poole, Deputy Director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity and Professor in the Department of Human Development and Family Studies at UConn. Uh, Dr. Poole, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you. Um, if you could respond to the conversation we've been having about how stigma uh, plays into uh, the interactions that uh, people uh, may have uh, when they go to the doctor's office and how that can then have an adverse effect on the, on the way they're able to uh, become healthier. 
Sure. You know, there are several decades of research evidence showing that, that weight stigma is a real problem in the healthcare setting. Uh, we see from self-report studies that uh, primary care providers, endocrinologists, cardiologists, nurses, medical trainees express stereotypes that patients with obesity are lazy, lacking in control or willpower to blame for their weight. And we know that this can impair quality of healthcare for patients. Um, there has been evidence showing that healthcare providers may be spending less time in appointments with patients who have obesity, providing less education about their health, and expressing that they have less desire to help these patients. Um, and we also know that, that this can affect healthcare utilization, that when patients perceive that they have been stigmatized about their weight in the healthcare setting, um, that they avoid healthcare because of these experiences. They don't want to repeat those experiences. Um, and so we, we really do need to take this uh, seriously as, as a legitimate issue in the healthcare setting, um, and we need to find ways to uh, really improve support and empowerment for patients rather than uh, creating an environment that makes them feel shamed or stigmatized. When we're talking about children, how does that stigma impact them, Dr. Poole? Well, we know from our national studies that weight-based bullying is one of the most common forms of bullying that children face in the United States. And essentially, boys and girls who have obesity are, are significantly more likely to be bullied than their senior peers, regardless of factors like their race or social skills or academic achievement. And we know that their risk of being bullied about weight increases with BMI so that those at higher levels of obesity have more vulnerability. I think what we need to really consider here is the impact that this has on children. So often when we talk about childhood obesity, we're talking about the medical consequences, um, but there are uh, very damaging social and emotional consequences that come with bullying because of obesity. Um, this is very harmful to children's health. Uh, Dr. Mahal, you are also are director of the Yale Weight Loss Program. Uh, does that mean that your patients are only adults? And, and how, um, as a, a medical doctor, how should uh, we be talking about um, uh, obesity when we're thinking about children? So my patients are all adults. I'm not a pediatrician, um, but I can, you know, I can certainly empathize with. Um, you know, the negative effects of bullying, um, which, you know, sometimes can cross over into adults as well. We just don't call it necessarily bullying, but the sort of stigma associated with weight can have um, obviously not just emotionally negative um, aspects to it, but also make it difficult for patients to take the right steps to uh, to to help their health. Mm. Uh, so, Dr. Poole, uh, again, uh, the uh, conversation being like how pediatricians are talking with parents and children about weight to lessen that stigma. So how should that conversation happen? That's a great question. I think a lot of times pediatricians and other healthcare providers uh, feel hesitant to have these conversations. They're worried about how it's going to come across. They don't want to offend patients. Um, and we need to really look at how is it how can we best support both children and families in their efforts to be healthier? We've done some research trying to look at uh, look at this issue from the perspective of kids. So how how do they perceive language that providers use about their weight? And what we see is that kids really prefer more neutral language. So rather than talking about severe obesity or fatness, to really use words like, could we talk about your weight today? Could we talk about your body mass index and how this is affecting your health? Um, kids have a lot of different preferences when it comes to this. And what we see is when uh, adults, pr uh, providers, parents engage in negative weight talk, that this can really affect their emotional well-being. So we want to create conversations where, where kids feel supported. And that can start by simply asking kids, what kind of words would you feel most comfortable with while we have this conversation today? To give them 
uh, a feeling of some control and some uh, support in this conversation. Mm. What about uh, when, uh, you know, when society looks at parents of children who are struggling with uh, being overweight or obese? Is there a judgment there? Um, but when you look at uh, lots of the different uh, factors in an adult's life when they're a parent, uh, not everyone can or, you know, afford to buy the most healthy food, or there is a, a time crunch uh, there, depending on where uh, the family is and the socioeconomic uh, scale. So I'm just curious, you know, how, um, you know, we should be changing the conversation to provide support for those parents. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Parents are very frequently blamed for their child's weight. And in some ways, that can also reinforce stigma that their children experience. When we think about childhood obesity, you know, this is a very complex issue with multiple contributors. And certainly, family factors play one role in terms of what food is available in the house, what kinds of food preferences family members have, and their family eating habits. But there are many more factors outside of the home environment that have a very strong influence. You know, we have a food environment where fast food and sugary beverage consumption is very common and easily accessible and cheap. For adolescents in particular, they tend to associate junk food with pleasure and and independence and convenience. Uh, We can also look at the food environment in schools. You know, schools are where kids spend most of their time, and the availability of unhealthy foods in school environments has really increased dramatically. Whether we look at cafeteria food or vending machines, um, school stores, there are lots of sources of unhealthy foods. Um, even beyond that, we can look at how food is marketed to children and adolescents in our country. Uh, the food industry spends almost $2 billion per year in the U.S. marketing um, targeted unhealthy foods to, to children and, and adolescents. And the overwhelming majority of that marketing is for unhealthy products that are high in calories and sugar and fat. And then you also brought up an important point, which is current economic conditions, which really have created a food environment that contributes to obesity. You know, unhealthy foods simply cost less than healthy food and is much easier to access. So I think when we, when we look at the bigger picture here, um, you know, parent responsibility, family factors, that is certainly one one piece of this complex puzzle. But if we only focus on that one piece, if we only point the finger at parents and we don't look at all of these other pieces, then we are not going to solve this problem. We're talking about childhood obesity with Dr. Rebecca Poole, Deputy Director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity, also a professor uh, in the Department of Human Development and Family Studies at UConn. And with us from Yale is Dr. Wajahat Mahal, a uh, professor of medicine and also director of the Yale Weight Loss Program. Uh, Dr. Mahal, when we hear that statistic that one-third of Ameri- American children are overweight or obese, do the statistics show that they will likely grow to be uh, obese adults? Um, not surprisingly, you know, the, the trend does tend to continue, and it really is a tremendous problem. Um, and many of the diseases that we tended to see in, in individuals when they were much older, say in their 40s or 50s, are now showing up in um, people in their 20s and 30s because they have been carrying the extra weight for already for 10 or 15 years. So it's, it's a huge medical problem. And then the other thing I'd like to point out is that we do need to sort of try and separate out all the negative social aspects associated with obesity, which clearly we need to try and reverse as much as possible, you know, with the negative sort of biological aspects, which are very difficult to reverse. Um, So, you know, it's difficult to get this mixed message across that clearly, you know, patients who individuals who are obese should not be discriminated against in any sphere of life, you know, work, school, or or in healthcare. Um, Yet, it's, you know, not to get across the message that it's healthy to be obese. So it's very difficult. I mean, I always think of an example such as if we were talking about bullying due to freckles, 
um, you know, that would be a very easy fix, right? Because it's just wrong and this having freckles is perfectly fine and end of story, but this comp- this more complex message is difficult to get across. Mm. You bring up bullying, Dr. Mahal, so I wanted to go back to uh, Dr. Rebecca Poole. What is the role of educators in, in uh, helping children uh, within the school environment uh, who are overweight or obese and who are targets of bullying? Because, uh, frankly, it does happen, and we all remember when we're in school that uh, people do pick on the fat kid. Yes, and you know, this is a huge problem in schools. And right now, most schools in the country have an anti-bullying policy in place. However, body weight is rarely included in these policies. So I actually think that there's an important opportunity here to try to strengthen school-based anti-bullying policies. We know that when schools have more comprehensive bullying policies, that they have lower rates of bullying. But, you know, body weight's really not on the radar. So I think there's a lot of education that needs to happen um, for teachers as well, you know, whether it's looking at what topics are covered in diversity curriculum or anti-bullying curriculum to make sure that body weight is included and is treated as a legitimate form of bullying, just like bullying based on sexual orientation or race ethnicity or any other characteristic. Uh, when we look at uh, children that are dealing with uh, being overweight, um, you know, when we look at the national statistics, is the problem getting worse, uh, Dr. Rebecca Poole? Are there any signs of uh, you know, prevention efforts that are working? Well, certainly we are seeing uh, many more efforts at the legislative level to try to implement policies that can help address this on a larger scale. So, for example, uh, many policies are being proposed at the federal, state, and even local levels to do things like address unhealthy food and beverage marketing to youth in schools, to put healthier products in vending machines and healthier kids' meals in restaurants. Um, So I think these kinds of initiatives signal that we really need broader level solutions to this problem. Uh, you mentioned uh, the role of, of schools and how uh, certain uh, food, uh, junk food and uh, soda is provided. I know uh, different school districts uh, come up with wellness policies, uh, pro, you know, keeping certain food and celebrations uh, like for a child's birthday or certain holidays. But again, uh, these cafeterias still permit uh, the sale of junk food because, you know, it is a moneymaker for school districts. That must be frustrating. I think it's extremely frustrating, especially for parents who are trying to do the best they can to feed their families um, healthier foods. And, you know, we need to make it easier for parents to do that. And when schools offer these options, it's really making things harder. Uh, this is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. I want to uh, thank our guests uh, today for this conversation we've been having on obesity and stigma in this country. First, Dr. Rebecca Poole, Deputy Director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity, also professor in the Department of Human Development and Family Studies at UConn. Uh, Dr. Poole, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. And also Dr. Wajahat Mahal, professor of medicine at the Yale School of Medicine and director of the Yale Weight Loss Program. He joins us today from the studios of Yale University in New Haven. Dr. Mahal, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you so much. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Lydia Brown. Special thanks to WNPR intern Phil Geolopsis and uh, also Kyone Wolf, our technical producer. And if you enjoy listening to Where We Live and the amount of uh, different conversations we have uh, each week, we ask you to support this program and all of the programming here at Connecticut Public Radio. Uh, here are two of my colleagues to tell you the number to call. 